Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com/csb1 Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. When Elliot Jacques was born in 1917, the average man in America lived to 48, and the average woman lived to 54. Jacques was a psychoanalyst, and he was also someone who consulted for businesses, and he coined a term that stuck with us, midlife crisis. Now, when Jacques was born, life's midpoint for Americans was somewhere in your mid-20s. Now, life expectancy in America is 77 for men, 82 for women, and the U.S. is actually outdone by dozens of countries on that front. But that huge increase in longevity brings a different kind of midlife crisis. What if your career is so long that you'll get bored doing the same job for 50 or 60 years? How does it affect your decisions about getting married or having kids if you know you're going to live a fair amount longer than your grandparents did? Andrew Scott is a professor of economics at London Business School, and he says that as lifespans have skyrocketed over the past couple of centuries, our relationships, our jobs, even our stages in life have changed drastically. And it's about to happen again. Andrew Scott is co-author of The Hundred Year Life, Living and Working in an Age of Longevity. Andrew, thanks for being here. My pleasure, and thank you for your interest in the book. So first of all, How long, on average, are children born today in developed countries going to live, you know, versus maybe somebody who is middle-aged today? Yeah. So there's obviously, you know, this is a bit like climate change, how can you predict into the future Mm -hmm. uh, current trends? And there's lots of ifs and buts. And we're looking at the average data here, and averages conceal an awful lot. But basically, the trend over the last 200 years has been that every 10 years, life expectancy has increased by two or three. So what that roughly means is that you've got a good chance of living another six to nine years longer than your parents. And that really means that children born in the rich countries since 2000 have got a more than 50% chance of living to be over 100. Wow. So I don't know if you've done the math, but if you went back a couple hundred years, how long were people living then versus today? Yes, this is where it all gets uh, quite complicated. If you go back 200 years, people have been living to around about mid-40s. That's the life expectancy at birth. So then the question is how long, you know, we've seen huge improvements in infant mortality, which gave a big boost to life expectancy. Then we saw big improvements in dealing with um, cardiac problems and improving Mm -hmm. uh, how we treat and also deal with issues like alcohol and tobacco. So we've seen fantastic improvements in survival rates for those of middle-aged. And what we're now seeing is big improvements in both um, survival rates and fitness for those in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. So the result is that the fastest growing age group now is basically people aged over 100. It's obviously growing from a very low base. There's a big debate about how long this can carry on for. Uh, the oldest person ever to have lived was a, a French lady who lived to the age of 122. So we know that that's possible. But of course, there are those around who argue that the first person to live to 500 has already been born, given the developments in science. But I think if you look at the, the data and the current trends, you know, I'm 51. If you look at someone born today, they've probably got another 10 years of life on me. And if you look at UK data, my life expectancy is around about 
8990. So someone mm. born today has a very real chance of living to 100. And, and that's the average. There'll be many people living beyond that. Which is incredible in some ways that somebody born while you are still alive right, has such a, a much longer expected lifespan than you do. I mean, that, that's an incredible shift in, we're not talking thousands of years, we're talking 50, 60 years. No, it is. And, and, and we kind of feel that what's really happened is that because so many people base longevity on what their parents or what their grandparents do, we're kind of missing out on things. And, you know, the, the thesis that we have in the book is that we've really designed a, a life that works over 70 years but isn't going to be able to be stretched to 100 years. And, you know, there's lots of metaphors you can use here. Most people mistakenly think about this longevity issue is about what you do at the end of life. But we think you're going to redesign all of life. Mm -hmm. You know, if if life is no longer a 10-mile race but a 15-mile race, you have whole new tactics and whole new stages. And, of course, you hit the old milestones at different points in time, which is one reason we think people are getting married later, buying cars, buying houses, having children later. So uh, let me just go back for a minute. If Over the last couple of hundred years, um, our lifespans have increased from, let's say, roughly 40 to roughly 80. Huge increase. How have we redesigned our lives, um, if we have, to accommodate that enormous amount more time that we have. So it's it's really interesting, isn't it? We, we think of time as being something quite fixed, but you know, time is in so many ways a social convention. And I think over the last 200 years, you see two ways in which time has been structured. One is around the Industrial Revolution and the working week and the weekend. But the other one, which I think is really interesting, is the 20th century saw the invention of two new stages of life, two stages of life that didn't exist before. That was teenagers and that was retirees. For most of human history, you just had children and then you became an adult. But as we lived for longer, as schooling was extended, we had this sort of intermediate stage of adolescence. And it took a long while for society to work out what to do with them. And eventually they hit upon the concept of the teenager, which is somewhat now recognized. And then, of course, what people used to do was just work until they died. And that wasn't a happy ending because as you get older, you do get more frail. So you earn less. You worked all the time, but you were financially insecure. You'd often have to live in the house with your children, which wasn't a happy experience for both sides. And then in the 20th century, we invented this concept of retirement and said people should be able to have a time at the end of their life in leisure where they're financially secure. So that was two stages that were invented, I would say, because longevity was now going out to 70. Now it's going out to 100. We think there will be whole new stages of life being uh, created and not just teenagers and retirees, but other stages as well. I'm Kara Miller talking to Andrew Scott, author of The 100-Year Life, Living and Working in an Age of Longevity. So as the lifespan then goes from, let's say, 75, 80 to 100, what is going to happen just as adolescence and retirement were two stages of life that simply, you know, if you had talked to people about that a couple hundred years ago, they, they would have looked at you with a blank stare. What are we creating now? That, that people today would think, huh, that's interesting. That's a new stage of life. So there's a number of interesting things there. So let me tell you some of the new stages that we think we can see emerge, although I think we're set for a big period of experimentation. Just as it took sort of 80 years to really nail the concept of the teenage years, it may take a long while to find out what the new stages are. So one one, uh, I think, is actually sort of a post-teenage period between the ages of 18 and 30. Um the, the date at which people take on 
what have traditionally been full adult responsibilities, by which I mean a job, a house, a family, etc., has been pushed right back. So in the early 60s, by the age of 21, 50% of Americans were married. Hmm. Now, uh, it's 28 is the age at which 50% of Americans are married. And, you know, I look at pictures of my father when he's 14. He looks incredibly old. He's wearing a suit and tie. He has a job. He's paying He's paying rent. Uh, and then you know, I didn't really pick up those responsibilities till my early 20s. And I look at my children, who I love dearly, but I think I can't see them picking up those responsibilities to the late 20s. No, I mean, I have to say, it's really true. I mean, my, my grandmother got married when she was 20, which seems terribly young to me now. But I don't think in her world that was... You know, that she was getting married at a different time than, I mean, you know, it, it seemed exactly. logical. Well, we follow our social role models. And I think I think there's two reasons why we're seeing this sort of um, lengthening, lengthening of the time before you take on adult responsibilities. Some of them are negative. You know, the houses are expensive. People mm-hmm. have got student debt. It's hard to get on the job market. So there's some negative right. forces at work. But I think there also are some positive ones. And the way we look at it is as follows, which is that, over a longer life, options become more valuable. If you look, in financial markets, you can buy an option to buy a, sh- uh, a share. And uh, that becomes more valuable the longer over which the period it's held. And over a longer life, options are more important. You don't want to cash in so early. Mm-hmm. So whereas my father might say this is a generation that lack commitment, I would say they're probably investing in options. They're finding out <laughs> what they like, what they're good at, and they're saying, I've got this very long life ahead of me. Right. This used to be a 10-mile race. It's a 15-mile race. I'm not going to go flat out from an early stage. I'm going to meander around a little bit. So kind of new age of entrepreneurship, which interestingly, I think you're also seeing in people age 60 plus. A lot of people are saying, well, look, I'm still fit and healthy. I haven't got enough money to sort of in my pension to last me through to 90 or 100. So I don't want to touch my pension yet. I don't want to work full time, but I'm quite interested in doing something that is a bit about me and a bit more uh, interesting, a bit more entrepreneurial. So you're seeing the same sort of behavior actually in people in their 60s, which I think is Hmm. interesting. Yeah, no, that's a really salient point i think because the you know the meaning of what it means to be quote unquote old i think has to change because exactly. you know people used to retire at 65 you know and, and here in the states where when social security was passed people got social security for a couple of years and then on average they died um yeah. and now it's the beginning of a whole you know very very often multi-decade period of your life so, you know, are you old at 65? I'm not sure. Ah, uh, it's brilliant. So I think we see there's all sorts of things that need to change. And we're so wedded to certain numbers having a significance that, oh, you're old. Mm-hmm. Now, I, you know, I worry that as I get older, this is just me trying to pretend I'm young. But I don't <laughs> think so. You know, you know what, what people do. So give me, give me an example. Uh, divorce rates are falling in general. Uh, but they're rising here for those in their 60s, 70s. And the fastest growth rate is happening from people in their 80s. The highest so divorce rate is the, the highest growth, growth in, is the highest growth in, in divorce rates is in the eighties. Now that's starting from a very very low base, hence the growth is very very high. But you know clearly, you know what people associate with certain numbers changes when you live to a hundred and not seventy. The other thing we think is important is that over a longer life. We don't think a three-stage life of education, work, and retirement can work. We think we talk about a multi-stage life, 
And a multi-stage life probably involves different career paths. Sometimes just working for money, sometimes a bit more of a work-life balance, other times maybe doing something more for society. But you're going to go through a lot more transitions. And we, we like this idea of what we call juvenescence. So adolescents are very good at change. Adults typically aren't. But over a longer life, you're going to have to go through more change. So we think people are being more juvenescent. So for a whole host of reasons, we think that you're going to see a lot more flexible career paths. And with that comes the end of the stigma, because in a three-stage life measured out over 70 years, you have what we call lockstep. You know, you tell me you're 20, I kind of know what you're doing in life. You tell me you're 40, I know what you're doing in life. And everyone does it at the same time. And if you fall out of lockstep, people treat it very suspiciously. Mm -hmm. But we think, because you can have a multi-stage life and you can sequence that life in many different ways, you know, you could do your money-making career from 20 to 30 or from 40 to 50. And so because you're going to sequence things in different ways, we'll begin to see the end of lockstep. I think it's going to create some very interesting uh, career issues, both for individuals and for firms, because people will have different priorities at different points in life. You could be an undergraduate at 20, 40 or 60. You could be a senior manager at 30, 50 or 70. So there's an awful lot of change to lockstep uh, coming, we think. How are governments thinking about this, dealing with this? It seems like, uh, first of all, a terrible strain on governments. And second of all, they have to think about everybody, the people who are putting away 10 or 20 percent a year and the people who are putting away nothing a year, maybe because they're not thinking about retirement, but maybe they are and they just they can't, you know, they're paying everything to live in the houses they're in and to eat and, you know, transportation and all that. And at the end of the week, there's just nothing left. One of the things we try and do in the book is to be almost irritatingly positive. We try and say this is a massive opportunity um, because if we do redesign life, we think this is just a fact. Yeah, most people want more time. We are on average living longer and we're healthier for longer. This should be a massive positive for us. So the fact that many people, when we tell them this, sort of groan and say, oh, my God, uh, we just seem to have something, you know, that can't be right. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to be a very positive thing about what the options are. And I do think governments need to create a more positive atmosphere around this because at the moment most of the debate is about you can't afford a pension and you're going to get Alzheimer's none of which people want to engage with it's all about a bad end of life whereas we think this is about all of life the inequality issues I think are terribly terribly worrying the natural thing to do will be to raise retirement age because we can't afford to pay state or private pensions at 60 if people are living to 100 the only trouble is if those with lower income are uh, have life expectancy of 75 or 80, you then run the danger of actually removing retirement for that group, which would be terrible. Mm -hmm. So you kind of need to do two things. One is how do we increase life expectancy for everyone? And secondly, how do we make sure that retirement just doesn't come a preserve of the better off? So that is a massive challenge because you can however unpopular it is politically, you can always take money from the rich and give it to the poor, but you can't take years of life from the rich and give it to the poor. Mm -hmm. So this is about public education, it's about nutrition and health, availability of food, fitness and um, medical resources. And that's a really challenging agenda that I think will get more and more up the agenda. Right now, people are focusing on income inequality, but when income inequality leads to 20 years differences in life expectancy, we'll start to see much more around it. 
Andrew Scott is professor of economics at London Business School. He's also the co-author of the book, The Hundred Year Life, Living and Working in the Age of Longevity. Andrew, thank you so much. My pleasure. It's been great fun to talk. On our Facebook page, we've got a great story for you about a 94-year-old inventor who, as they say, is on fuego. That's at facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. And now a dip into history for the story of a man who changed how we think about retirement. His name was Del Webb, and he had a big dream growing up in California, which was to play pro baseball. He actually did play in the minor leagues. And then one day he did an exhibition game in kind of a weird place, San Quentin Prison in Northern California. Somehow, while he was there, he got typhoid. He got really sick. He lost half his body weight. His doctor suggested that he and his wife move to Arizona to recover, which is what they did. His career in baseball was put on hold, but he developed a pretty great gig on the side, doing construction. Webb was totally broke at the end of the 1920s, but by the height of the Depression, he was a millionaire. And somehow, as he got richer, he picked up some unusual friends. He played golf with Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, and he did a lot of work on the Vegas Strip, which put him in rooms with mobsters like Bugsy Siegel. Siegel actually once had to reassure Webb, who was helping him build the Flamingo Casino, that, quote, don't worry, we only kill each other. Along the way, as he slid closer to age 60, he realized something, that the experience that he had had recuperating in Arizona could become very, very profitable. So in the 1950s, he started work on a concept that was not completely unique to him, but it had never been imagined on the scale that he would imagine it, a retirement community. The community would be called Sun City, and it would be situated near Phoenix. It was an actual town, self-sufficient, a place for older Americans to enjoy warm weather and golf and socializing. Webb opened the doors in early 1960 with high hopes. He believed he could get 10,000 people to visit on opening weekend. 100,000 showed up. Sun City, an active new way of life. Golf course, activity center, community center, recreation park, swimming pool, highway house, shopping center. It's like a resort. Webb became a minor celebrity. He was on the cover of Time magazine, which ran a profile of him. And Sun City, which is actually built on the site of an Arizona ghost town, grew like gangbusters. More than 60,000 people now live in Sun City and Sun City West. During a life of nonstop action, Del Webb helped change how America thought about relaxation and retirement. Much like his work on the Vegas Strip, Sun City became an exercise in imagination, a wildly successful piece of the American dream, one that rose right out of the desert. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. They say age doesn't matter. 
but pay attention to the numbers here. In 1665, Isaac Newton had a really big year. He made a huge contribution to algebra, and he started his work on developing calculus. That year, he also turned 23. More than two centuries later, another scientist came up with a huge advance in our understanding of physics. His name was Niels Bohr, and he developed a breakthrough model of the atom, 28 years old. Several years after that, another scientist upended the field of astronomy. Cecilia Payne realized that stars were composed primarily of hydrogen, making it the most abundant element in the universe. She was 24. For years, there's been this kind of conventional wisdom that great genius is often young genius. And even if you're not a genius, breakthrough ideas come from young people. Laszlo Barabashi is a professor of network science at Northeastern University, and he decided to study when in our lives we actually come up with our best ideas. Laszlo, thanks for coming in. It's a pleasure. So it seems, I think, like accepted wisdom amongst many people that in some fields of study, like physics, the brilliant things are done by uh, the really young people. But your research says that's not the case. First, why did you start looking into this at all? Well, because I'm turning 50. (laughs) (laughs) And I wanted to know, is there any hope for me? Can I still make a discovery? (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, But down the line, of course, if you are a scientist and you are kind of really nearing 50 or beyond 50, you do need to question whether is there a chance that my best days are behind me? And if I look at my own career, uh, I published what is in my career the biggest impact paper in my early 30s. So the question is, you know, should I carry on or maybe it's time for me to start hosting radio shows? (laughs) Right, exactly. Is this the point where you start phoning it in, right? Yes. (laughs) Okay. So how do you study this kind of thing, whether the sort of really smart thing that somebody does is when they're 32 Mm -hmm. um, or whether there's still hope at 52? So there has been quite a bit of studies in the last few decades about looking at the history of innovation and discoveries. And there's lots of anecdotal and there's lots of concrete evidence. And what the anecdotal evidence shows that if you look, for example, all the physicists who made quantum mechanics possible, they were all in their early 20s. And so many Nobel Prizes that came out that came from research done by were virtually teenagers. And, and, and so people kind of started to expand that and look at systematically. They would look at dictionaries, who are the important people, and they would say, when did they make their biggest discovery? Mm-hmm. And there is a consensus that the median age is about 39. That is that really people in their 30s make their biggest, most important work, whether that's literature, innovation, science, uh, seems to be rather consistent across the pattern. But I'll just stop you for a second. 39 is young, Mm -hmm. but it's not 22. It is not 22. So, so, so there are field differences. So in physics, traditionally has been in the 20s and maybe early 30s. In other areas, like engineering, always a little bit later. And what people have shown even before us is to say, well, there has been a consistent shift towards a little bit older ages in the last few decades, mainly because education is taking much longer. So that could, to get to the point, you know, you have to study more. Right. Okay. So how do you then study this kind of thing to see 
where your real breakthroughs are and and how things taper off, if at all, as you get older. Sure. So so our interest was to say all this research has been done on geniuses. It's actually part of the so-called genius literature. And so we wanted to ask what happens with ordinary scientists. It turned out that the vast majority of the people made their biggest impact work in the first 20 years of their career. And beyond that, it dropped precipitously the chance that the biggest impact work will come, let's say, 35 or 25 years after you started your career. What we realized that it's not that people are smarter in the first 20 years of their career, but they try more. Right. Well, they're trying to get tenure. They're trying That's to prove right. themselves. That's right. So what is this telling us? What is telling us is that every single work that we publish as a scientist has the same chance to be the biggest breakthrough. But because we publish a lot early in our career and we taper off later, the chances of having the highest discovery will come early. So think of scientific discoveries as uh, playing the lottery or throwing a dice. Right, So as long as you keep buying tickets, you have a chance of winning the lottery. When you stop buying tickets, you actually, it tapers off your chance. So it sounds like 50-year-olds are not really any less likely to come up with a smart breakthrough than 25-year-olds. Uh, it's just that 50-year-olds just... They're relaxing a little bit more. It's not, the pressure's not on as much. That's right. And, and it's been noticed before that there is a lower productivity, but no one really connected to the creativity part. They also thought creativity goes down. And, you know, the reasons why the, uh, the productivity drops at 50 or whatever, uh, it's because we start having families, we start being sick, we start taking up administrative roles. Uh, there are lots of other opportunities opening up our career that we want to do. So, so it's well explained that, but the fact is, is that, you know, the chances of making a breakthrough is completely uniform. And I don't think this is specific to science. I mean, there's now, once we made this discovery, we started to see lots of anecdotal evidence that is true beyond science, just about anywhere. So I would guess that you, as a radio host, if you would have some measure of what is your highest impact uh, uh, radio show, it would completely be age independent. I agree with that. And, and, and it would be random. In the sense that it would not be in a certain part of your career, it would be completely random when it would appear. So just have to carry on and do that. No, I agree with that. And I and whether it's radio hosts or physicists, um, there is also some truth that that you know maybe in the beginning you're trying really hard, mm -hmm. but and which is true if you're a radio mm -hmm. host too. But as you get older, you get better. And you have more, you know, you have more ways of drawing connections because, like, when you were 25, you didn't have those connections in your head to draw. That's what I thought so true. But our data shows that's not the case whatsoever. Hmm. So there were lots of hypotheses that we demasked and we kind of had to destroy in this paper. One of the hypotheses we had when we went in was that, that once you make a big discovery or a really cool show, then you somehow got it. You know what it takes to really make a big, next big discovery. You know the elements. And so we thought that perhaps you would see the learning process leading to that. So the papers approaching the big discovery would better and better. But most important, once you had that, it would actually stay at a higher level. No evidence whatsoever for that. This is what we actually call in the lab the finger curve. <laughs> because <laughs> turns out that if you look at the history of the papers around your highest impact discovery, there's low impact paper, suddenly 
your finger going out, that's your highest impact paper, and then goes back to where it was before. So, so you don't see success coming, or nor do we learn from it. I have to say, you're showing me your middle finger right now. I'm trying, <laughs> I'm trying not to be offended. I'm trying to take this in the scientific context Good. in which it's intended. <laughs> it is intended like that. Um, does that mean, you know, we think about songs and, you know, people who write songs. We talk about one-hit wonders. Is that equally true in science that, that you know, people have these papers that are amazing and game-changing for, for economics or for chemistry or for biology or whatever, and maybe never again in their career, or maybe only 20 years later in their career, do sort of all the pieces align for them again, and they think, I got it again. But it doesn't, like, keep happening. So, no. <laughs> and, and that's kind of the second part of the discovery and perhaps the most troubling for me as a scientist. And it generally has been the most troubling for the community. Because after we analyze all the data, what we realize that there is a very simple model that describes how a scientist works, which is I take a random number, which is my random project that I'm going to work on, and then I multiply it with a skill parameter that is unique to me. And the impact of the work will be the product of the two. What does it mean? It means that sometimes I can pick a low impact work and multiply it with my skill parameter and it will be low impact. But sometimes I can pick a high impact and multiply it with my skill parameter will be a higher impact work. Okay, so you so, take the project, you add to it your talent, and hopefully you get you get right. some great thing so out of it. So all every scientist, even the greatest one, published very bad projects because they picked the wrong number. Mm -hmm. But if you have a high skill parameter, you will occasionally have a blockbuster. And here comes the trick. We thought that the skill would improve with age, would improve around the career. It's completely unchanged during the career of a scientist. It's mind-boggling. No change whatsoever. And it's mind-boggling because I really believe that the skill parameter should change. I really think that we learn. I learn. We all do. But somehow the skill parameter doesn't want to change the career of these individuals, whether they are biologists, physicists, or mathematicians. Have you ever considered um, the possibility that older scientists have hits not because they are better than younger scientists, mm -hmm. um, but because they are famous. And so somebody says, this this guy is like a big deal in chemistry or like yeah. this guy is a big deal in biology. I should take a look at his paper. And because of that, mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? People listen to the songs that are written by famous people and they like them. And maybe there's good songs written by non-famous people, but they never heard those songs. So, you know. It's, it's a beautiful question. And this is something that we can quantify. And we did quantify, we meaning the community. And the answer is, Fame brings you visibility. Because of fame, I'm going to listen to your radio show or I will read your paper. But once I read it, then it's the value of what you put in front of me that matters. So even if you are very famous, if you put out a crappy paper, it will get an initial boost because you are famous, because I'm going to read it, but it will not have a long-term impact. So fame doesn't carry over in the long term. It just gives you visibility. Now, that's very important because every year about a million research papers are published and we read a hundred the most, right? So which one do we read and how much attention we pay to them is clearly biased by fame, right? Or respect towards the scientist. But once we read that, are we able to follow up on that? 
Is it providing ideas on which we can build it? And no matter how famous he or she as a scientist, if the paper has no ideas that I can follow up, all, I, all you achieve with the fame is that I read it and I forgot it. Now, you're absolutely right. It is possible and there are fantastic examples in the literature where credit is not given to whom it sh uh, should deserve to. So, you know, one of the other things we do in the lab is we ask, if you and I write a paper, let's say, on network, mm -hmm. who will get the credit for it? And I can tell you that. I will get the credit for it. <laughs> and the reason I will get the credit for it I'm is not, not, because, it. <laughs> not because you are a woman, not, but mainly because you are not a scientist and you have not published in this area before. And even if you have 10,000 papers before, you know, what, you, what we find is that, is that because I have a track record in networks, people will attribute the discovery to me. Right. So my answer is, like, the way I would put it is that if the Pope and I write a paper on network science, that's my paper. If we write on divine intervention, that's his paper. I don't know. I think if the Pope writes a paper on network science, you should watch out. <laughs> um, give me a sense. Do you feel like uh, your best work is still ahead of you? Oh, I know that I have a chance. <laughs> um, you did say that one other piece of this whole thing, though, is that skill does not really change that much over time. So if you have hope that your best days may be ahead of you, are you at all depressed that you're not getting any better? <laughs> Even though you're working hard, presumably, every day, somehow that's not adding up to being more skillful. No. To me, what is encouraging is the fact that, first of all, my skill set stays constant, right? So I can continue doing that. And now I have the evidence that I should carry on in many ways. Lassel Barabashi is a professor of network science at Northeastern University. Thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure. We will have a link to Barabashi's original paper on how scientists fare as they age. That's at innovationhub.org. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. And from Destination Medical Center, a strategic economic initiative in Rochester, Minnesota, to build global destinations for life science, medicine, and health. Learn more at dmc.mn. Many people wrestle with a kind of paradox. They feel like they're working harder than they ever have, but it's also harder to get ahead. So I'm going to add to that a data paradox. Americans are working, on average, pretty much exactly as many hours in a given week, just about 40 hours, actually, as they did 40 years ago. So that hasn't changed. What has changed is how many weeks a year we work. It's almost four more weeks than in the late 70s. And if you're in the bottom 20% of income earners, it's more like six weeks a year. Now, one tricky thing is that those are averages. So while some individual people are indeed working more, a lot of what's happened is that women have entered the workforce or they have ramped up to full time in huge numbers. And that has bumped up the number of work weeks for the average American. But no matter how you slice it, many people have less time for leisure, less time to spend with people in their family, less time to take care of their families. Julie Rose is an assistant professor of government at Dartmouth College who makes a controversial argument 
We should all have a right, a right to free time. If that seems too luxurious, Rose argues, you'd be surprised at how it could make both you and your community better. But before we get to her argument, we asked a few people around Penn Station in Baltimore if you had one more hour a day to do whatever you wanted, what would you do? I would get more rest. I would sleep more. Definitely sleep more. Well, I'm from New York City, so and I work very hard all day long, like 10 to 12 hours a day. So I would take the time to take a nice long walk and explore my beautiful city of Manhattan. I work so much, I will go to sleep. I would go home and get in the bed and sleep for an hour. I would definitely, if I could have an hour dedicated to just yoga within my daily routine, that would be fantastic. Julie Rose is the author of the new book, Free Time. And she argues that giving people rights without giving people time is like giving them nothing. And that's true of lots of our rights. When you find yourself without time or money, real participation in a society can be virtually impossible. So say, to take a simple example, you have the right to vote. Um, in order to actually meaningfully have the right to vote, you have to have the means to be to make use of that right. So you'd need to have, say, a way to get to the polls, either with a bus ticket or with gas money. And so if you didn't actually have those means, we wouldn't think that you really had that right to vote. It would be in name only. Mm. And so that point is really widely recognized and is part of why liberal democratic societies generally hold that we have some entitlement to a decent amount of income. Because otherwise, if we were living in poverty so that we couldn't actually make use of any of our our formally guaranteed freedoms, they wouldn't be very valuable to us. Our citizenship would be somewhat empty. And so that point is normally recognized about money, but I think it holds just the same to time. So if we take the same example about uh, the right to vote, in order to vote, you also need the time to go to the polls. And so if you had to work all day and if the polls required standing in line in your area, your right to vote might similarly be meaningless or empty if Mm. you didn't have the time to do it. And I think that this simple point, uh, which is we can see with the example of voting, applies more generally. So any of the things that we're formally free to do require time in order to actually do them. So You need time to practice your religion. You need time to associate with others. You need time to participate in politics. And if any of those things are going to be real freedoms that we possess, we have to have the resource to do so. And those resources aren't just money. They're also time. What does it do, if anything, does free time make you a better person? Does it make you a better worker? Are there things that we know about what free time just does for you as an individual? Mm-hmm. So in some respects, I think it certainly does. It, there's plenty of evidence that having more free time makes us more productive, or at least up to a point, um, and that it certainly plenty of evidence that it also makes us healthier, both having better physical and mental health. But I think the thing I'd really want to put the emphasis on is that what's important about free time is that it allows us to do the things that we want to do. Uh, and so in this, I take some inspiration from this, from this late 19th century labor slogan that People were entitled to eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, and then importantly, eight hours for what we will. So the idea here is that it's important that we have time just to devote to our pursuits, whatever they are, however we choose to spend them. So it might be the case that we do choose to do things that are more productive or healthier. But I think the central idea is that we would lead more fulfilled lives doing more of the things that we wish to do. Hmm. So it sounds like 
it doesn't matter what you do with your free time. You're still entitled to it. You can watch soap operas during that free time. <laughs> you can read books. You can go for a walk. You know, you can eat Funyuns. It's all okay. It's all free time. I think that that's right. That is the core of my view. Uh, one thing I would say, so some people might push back at this point and think, oh, no, like now we're going to be guaranteeing free time to everyone and they're just going to be watching television. And you hear this kind of refrain um, commonly. One thing I would say if, it, if people wanted some reassurance on this front is that we shouldn't necessarily expect that what people do in their leisure time today is what they would do if we had a fair distribution of free time more broadly. So if you work really long hours, when you come home, most of the time you're just exhausted. And it's perfectly understandable that people would just want to watch TV or play video games. But if people were working shorter hours so that they had they weren't exhausted at the end of the day, they had more time that they could really plan and use uh, for different types of activities, I think that we might see people uh, doing more creative, innovative things or spending more time with family or in, mm. in types of activities that people would want to see people doing more of. Um, of course, just you know, to reiterate, on my view, of course, people can use it however they wish. And so if, if, you know, if television watching is really what you love and you know, in this era of peak TV, like that's a highly understandable preference, um, you know, they could go ahead and do that. But we also should think that maybe people would use their time in some other ways as well, if they possessed it under different conditions so that we weren't all exhausted. Right. You do something differently maybe um, when you think there's a, a lack of it and you get a little bit of it than if you know, well, that's okay. There's a steady supply coming. Yeah, exactly. And you right, can make right. plans. Yeah. Right. We talked earlier about society benefiting when people have time to vote. Can you think of another example in which uh, society benefits by a large number of people just having more free time on their hands? For sure. So under the current regime, most jobs come in this standard package. You can have the job for these hours. And given those choices and combined with the pressures of social norms, more women than men choose not to take the job and to do the caregiving instead. And instead, if we were to say, no, well, instead of only having the job on the standard package, you could take, say, 60% time for 60% pay, we might observe that more women decide to stay in the workplace so they mm. could still do some caregiving. And also importantly, some men might think that looks like a great deal too, and they would also take the option and they would do more caregiving. And so we might have more gender equality in both work and caregiving, if people were able to combine work and care in the way that they prefer, rather than just having a standard work package. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Julie Rose, author of the book Free Time. She's an assistant professor of government at Dartmouth. What kinds of incentives, uh, what kind of policy do you think should be enacted so that people can actually have some free time in their lives. And this could be on the low end of the income scale. It could be on the high end. So, of course, in the background, we'd have to make sure that the income distribution was such that everyone could 
earn a decent living while also having free time. So that those kinds of familiar policies having to do with minimum wage or the earned income tax credit, those kinds of things would have to be in the background. But setting that aside to focus specifically on the time dimension, I think the single most important policy we could have that would apply across the board would be a right to not work more than a maximum number of hours. What do you think that maximum should be? I think we could probably set it at, say... 35 hours per week. But I think it should be a matter of democratic choice. I think it's important that our society chooses intentionally how much time it wants everyone to have access to and how we should weigh socially the value of more time against increased economic growth, because that's really what it comes down to. And as it is right now, this is left to individuals who are usually making constrained choices because they don't actually have these real options. And instead, I think we should make it a social choice together that's intentionally made. So I would say, let's try 35 hours. But again, this could be a matter of democratic choice. Mm -hmm. Okay, 35 hours. So that's people working, let's say, nine to four every day. Mm -hmm. And then would they have the opportunity if they wanted to, to work till five or six, let's say, for more money? Yeah, exactly. So I think that ideally it should be a right to not work longer, but with the option to work longer if you want to. Uh, Partly that's because I think one of the values of free time or the central value of free time is that it's time when we get to choose what we want to do. And so some people might want to keep working either because they really enjoy it or because they want the additional money. So to the extent that it's possible, we should allow people to make that choice either by working longer hours at their job or by doing another job, say moonlighting or doing some kind of entrepreneurial work on the side or something like that. But it's important, though, that we are careful about this because it's possible that in some industries, the social norms and the competitive pressures are such that almost everyone would start taking that option. And then if you wanted to be the one who said, no, really, I want to leave it for, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't actually be able to choose that. And so if in certain industries that dynamic started to play out, then I think we would be justified in having a stricter maximum hours law where you actually aren't permitted to work longer than the specified number of hours, at least in that job. You could still work for additional money in another job, but not such that you're denying your fellow employees their right to free time. I wonder um, what the response to this book has been and whether you think we are moving towards having, you know, potentially actually trying to ensure that there's more free time in the U.S. I mean, I don't know, at the state level, at the city level, at the federal level. Just give me a sense of, like, what you're hearing. Mm -hmm. I think one of the main responses and one that I'm encouraged by is the longer-term picture. So in the short term, the immediate policy debates are not necessarily encouraging uh, as we're focusing on other things. But over the longer term, there's a question about how we should respond to automation and seeing that as an opportunity to provide more free time and not to just plow the increased productivity back into increased economic growth. That won't happen automatically. And in order for that free time to actually be increased and for it to actually be shared fairly across society, it has to be done in an intentional way through policy. You know, when you talk about uh, the increase in automation, maybe freeing up more of our time, if you go back decades, 50 years ago, 
uh, you will see people writing about these questions of, what are we going to do with all this free time? Like, <laughs> we have all this new technology, dishwashers, microwaves, like our food is going to be done so quickly and our household chores are going to be done so quickly. And and there was automation starting to come into factories. Like, what are we going to do with all this time? And I don't think that people in 2017 think, boy, that sure panned out. I, I don't know what to do all, with all this free time. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I think it's terribly sad, really, to be reading uh, the things from the early part of the 20th century and the middle of the 20th century when people thought, oh, we're just going to have this glut of free time. We're going to have too much leisure and the problem will be we won't know how to use it. And in fact, you can read all these things that thought, oh, it will mean that the real problem is education so that people can use all this abundant time well. And of course, none of this has come true. On the one hand, that gives us some grounds for pessimism and to think that People are, some people think automation is going to automatically lead to this increased amount of free time. And I just don't think that that's true. We can't assume that that's going to happen because of the kind of evidence we have from the past where these predictions were made and didn't come true. But because we have these predictions that were made in the past and then didn't come true throughout the 20th century, we can use that and point to that and say, well, if we actually want this to happen, we have to do it intentionally. Mm. We can't just allow it to happen and assume that it's going to happen organically because it won't. New consumer demands will arise and new jobs will be created to meet those demands. But we might choose, you know, we'd rather not have that expansion in consumer demand um, 100 percent. We'd at least like to take some portion of this increased uh, time and actually keep it and hold on to it. Julie Rose is an assistant professor of government at Dartmouth College. She's author of the book, Free Time. Julie, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Schertz. We also had production help from Matt Toda. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Innovation Hub is sponsored by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Discover. Care. Believe. And by the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. R.I. Public Radio International.